listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. seeing y'all here today. We're in Daniel chapter 7. If you would uh, turn in your Bibles there, we're going to finish up chapter 7 this morning. Um, As you're turning, I I had the privilege this weekend of going up to North Carolina. That's where I'm from. And when I pastored my first church in 1986, Riverside Baptist Church in Harrells, North Carolina, there was a young man that the Lord had saved just before I went there. And while I was there, the Lord called him to be a pastor. And so um, Since then, he went to Bible school, and he's been to seminary, and he's pastored in several different places, but he uh, just celebrated his 20-year anniversary at the church that he's in in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and so I had the privilege of just going up there yesterday and um, hanging out with him and being with his church family and just getting an opportunity to see how the Lord blesses. Um, What a privilege to just be in a place when God does something. Um, to him be the glory. And so um, so my heart is full from that. And while I was up there, I thought about um, some of my childhood. Um, my mom is from Harrells, North Carolina. My dad's from Garland, North Carolina. You don't know anything about that. You probably don't care anything about that. Um, but we used to ride the roads. Uh, the ground is sandy. There were pine trees everywhere. And one of the coolest things that I ever had uh, the opportunity to do was to go see um, Uncle Gene and Aunt Murdy. Um, and when you'd get there out in the middle of nowhere, the cool thing about Uncle Gene was is that he was a forest ranger. And when you go to where a forest ranger was back in the 70s or the 60s, they had all kinds of cool equipment. They had jeeps, they had boats, they had everything that you could ever imagine that a forest ranger would need. And to a kid that was 8 or 9 or 10 years old, he had a uniform and patches, and that was, that was really important for us back then. Maybe some of y'all can't relate to that, maybe some of you can't. Um, but one of, the, one of the coolest things in the world was being able to see the fire tower. Now, being from southeastern North Carolina, we didn't call it a fire tower. We called it a fire tire. And uh, maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. Is that how they say it in Mississippi? I see Jen back there laughing. Um, but um, just the fire tire. I want to go up the fire tire. And you go up in the fire tire. And when you get up in the fire tire, you get to the top and you open this door and the hatch, it closes down. And you get up there and you look out the windows and you're above all the treetops. And you can just see everything. And they would go up in the fire tower to see if there was any smoke or to see if there was a problem. And there were maps so that they could tell what was going on down there on the ground from up so high. When we come to the book of Daniel, that's what's happening in the text. The text apocalyptic literature will take us up high and let us see. And we're going to see that in verses 17 and 18 this morning where there's just this overview, this statement of overview. Here's the bad stuff that's happening. Here's the good stuff that's happening. And then Daniel's like, can you tell me some more? Can you tell me something about this this fourth horn? It's kind of like flying over uh, the, the United States. If you're flying from here to California, you fly over Kansas, and you look down and you're like, that looks like somebody just drew that with a square, the, the farmland. But you get down a little closer instead of 30,000 feet, you get down to 5,000 feet, and that looks a little different. If you've flown on a small plane that might be going 150 miles an hour, flying at 3,000 feet, things look different, or 1,000 feet, things look different. 
Or then when you begin to land, things really look different when you're trying to set down a plane, especially when it's a small plane and it slows down to about 60 miles an hour so it can get down on the tarmac. Things just look different. And Daniel's showing us that. He's not giving us different stories. He's giving us different perspectives on this one story. And we looked at chapter 7, verses 1 to 14 last week, and that's the dream. We'll say that here uh, Daniel is being given this information, having this dream. Uh, there is this revelation from God. When we come to verse number 15, we see the interpretation of the text. Now, before we read the text, let me just give you a couple of thoughts about um, in interpretation. I think it's really important. There are three things we do when we approach the text of Scripture. Three words, you can remember these words. One is observation, one is interpretation, one is application. There are three questions we always ask of the text. What does the text say? The first 14 verses, Daniel was giving us his dream. This is the revelation of God. This is Daniel's observation. What does the text say? But he's asking, beginning in verse 15, about the interpretation. The interpretation is not what it says, but what it means. So that's the second question. What does the text say? mean. Now, the text doesn't mean one thing to me and another thing to you. There are not multiple interpretations of the text. There is one interpretation of the text. The Bible is not through one statement saying a lot of different things. It's not my interpretation and your interpretation. It's the interpretation. Now, my interpretation may be wrong and your interpretation may be wrong, but the intent of us looking into Scripture and using a historical grammatical approach to the text, in other words, I'm going to look at the history of the text. I'm going to look at the genre of the text. I'm going to look at the language of the text. If it's Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, and when I begin to dig into all of these different things internally in the text, I'm digging out of the text what is in the text so that I can determine what the writer meant when he wrote it. That is always our goal. What did the writer mean when Scripture was given to us? And Scripture will always mean what it is always meant. That's interpretation. Okay? So don't, don't mix that up. The third thing is application. So what, is, what does it say? That's observation. What does it mean by what it says? That's interpretation. That's what we're going to look at today. And what do we do about it? That's application. We can take this one interpretation of Scripture, and it can have many applications. You may be in school and trying to be a student in the school system, or you may be a grandmother that's trying to raise your grandkids. There are going to be these different applications of the text, and that's okay. It's okay to say, this is what it means, and this is where I'm applying it in my life. And there's certainly interpretation in the text, and there's certainly application for us 2,500 years after this text was written. So we're going to read the text, and then we're going to look at um, what Daniel is saying to us with a couple of bullet points on the outline um, and then try to make some application for us this morning. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse number 15. He said, I saw... Excuse me, that's verse 13. Don't let your eyes go bad on you. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel... My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. So he's, this is the interpretation. Now here's what I want you to understand about this text that we're looking at. It's bracketed with distress. 
is bracketed with alarm. In other words, verse 15 and verse 28 are both verses that are telling us what's going on inside of Daniel. In fact, look over at verse number 28, if you will. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is not just information that he was taking into his brain and putting in a file folder in his brain and leaving it there. This was something that moved beyond the the vision that he saw to grip him to the very depth and core of his being. So uh, the first thing we look at then is the impact. But secondly, beginning in verse, uh, verse 17, we then begin to see the interpretation. Notice what he says in verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever. There he goes with an overview statement, right? There's the four kings that are rising up, and we are going to see all of these years and centuries of history, but at the end of the matter, Jesus wins. He has already won the victory through his resurrection. But Daniel needs more detail. So we see the flyover right there, right? He gives us two points. Now he's going to say, can you get a little closer? Can you just, can you tighten up the lens here so that we can see a little closer? Kind of like probably that balloon that's been, those balloons that have been flying over, right? These spy balloons with these, uh, you know, they, somebody said that they can from space see the dimples on a, on a golf ball. It's kind of like that mirror that I've got hanging at the house there that multiplies by 20, and you look at it and you're like, dang, uh, I got some big old pores on my face, right? And so he's saying, drop, drop this magnification down even closer. There's some things that I need to know. Verse 19, then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. So he's, he's focusing specifically on the fourth beast. He's essentially saying that, that this is uh, something like I've never seen before. We're already told that in the text, but secondly, For those of us that think we know what it is, be careful because this is something like nobody's ever seen before. Be careful. We want to assign meaning to everything, but we may be wrong about that. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke into pieces and, and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell and the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things. So now he wants more details. Tell me about the beast, the 10 horns, the three horns. We're getting smaller. We're getting smaller. We're getting closer. Tell me about the one horn here now. And I looked and this horn, verse 21, made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, this is the angel I'm guessing interpreting. A little bit about angels. We're given three archangels in the Bible. Uh, Lucifer was an archangel, right? He was the angel that was in charge of all of the angels in heaven that were worship angels. He was a worshiper. Michael the archangel is the war angel. Wherever you see battle going on, it's Michael that is being commissioned to go and fight, and he always wins. And then there is Gabriel, the word angel. Whenever there's a message to be delivered and an angel is identified, it's Gabriel. Probably he's having a conversation with Gabriel here, and Gabriel begins to talk. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all 
the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, universal, worldwide, and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, different than anything you've ever seen before, and shall put down three kings. He's violent. He's divisive. Verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand, telling us that God is sovereign even over all of this, the word given there. For a time, times and a half time. You go to the book of Revelation, that's defined as three and a half years. In other words, there's a limited time in which this terrible Little horn, this king, this violent, gruesome king is going to be allowed to wreak havoc. Verse 26, I love the next word, the little three word, the conjunction that completely changes direction, turn things around, but, but, but the court shall sit in judgment. That court where the books are opened, where righteous judgment is meted out, where a perfect God, based on what he has already said, determines outcomes based on his holiness. He is the righteous judge. He always does what's right. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away and to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Let's look at the impact first. Very, very briefly, three words that, that jump off the page to me. Number one, uh, Daniel in this impact in verses 15 and 28 was anxious. We see that he is anxious. He says that in the text. The word there means he is distressed. It is a gut punch. It is a shock to him. It is real. It is deep. Within him, it is emotional and it is catastrophic. I'm sure you've had something in life happen where something, you just had a strange feeling in your gut. You see something, you hear something, and you feel nauseated. Anybody ever had an experience like that? This is what's going on with him. Secondly, and he saw something like we've never seen. He sees human history unfolded before him, and he's like, oh, my goodness, here I am in captivity. I've already been through this in, in the, the early part of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and I interpret his dream, and it's the same thing. But now I'm looking at this all over again through my eyes and not his, and it creates this, this gut punch, this deep emotional response. Secondly, not only is he anxious, but verse 15 also says he is alarmed. He is troubled. He is dismayed. He is shaken up. There is this alarm that is going off inside of him. Tells us that Daniel is not uh, um, cold-blooded. He's not sociopathic. He's not unilaterally rationalistic. He's not saying if I can't rationalize it, then it must not mean anything. He felt and wondered and was deeply impacted and knew that he needed help. And so the third word that I have here on my outline is not just anxious and alarmed, but he sought assistance. We see that in verse 16. And again, um, potentially Gabriel who's talking to him. And Daniel is curious, what's going on? I want to know what's going on. I, I need to know what's happening here. He is desperate and he wants to know the truth. He doesn't want to know speculation. He wants to be informed accurately. Please tell me what I'm seeing. He says, make it known to me. 
not just interpretation or cold hard facts or information. I want to understand what is happening here in this dream. I need to understand it so I can survive. And the only way that we can survive it is if we understand it. The only way that we can survive life is if, is if we understand that, that Almighty God and His sovereignty is in complete control and that we are going to go through Nation after nation after nation with, with villainous kings who, who abuse and despise people over and over and over again. 550 B.C., Babylon. Guess what? There's going to be another king. Not just Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, but here's what he's saying. Who is the bear? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's Persia. There's, there's Cyrus that's going to rise up. Another king. You say, man, I'll be, glad when, I'll be glad when Nebuchadnezzar's done. I'll be glad when this Babylonian kingdom's done. There's going to be a bear after that. It's going to be another kingdom. And somebody's going to rule. And you're going to be abused. And you're going to be despised. And, and, and you're going to be taken into captivity. Or you're going to be harmed. And then after that, oh, I'll be glad when that kingdom's over. Well, what about Alexander the Great? He's going he's gonna to come and he's going to rule and dominate the world. And there's going to be all this violence and all of this despotism and all this cruelty. When will it be over? When will we finally be free? We're going to go through history and we can just name them one after the other, by the way, that have been called the Antichrist. You know, from Hitler to Mussolini to name it. I mean, there's just a long list and it just keeps coming. These peop people are going to be violent and there's, it's not going to end and there's not going to be a president in the United States that's going to end it. There's not going to be a nation that, it's gonna, that is going to bring it into it. It's only going to get worse and it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse until this final earthly kingdom comes on the scene and it's only going to get better when Jesus comes back. And so the, 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 the nature of apocalyptic literature, end times literature, would be this. Hey, guys, it ain't going to get no easier. It's going to be difficult over and over and over and over again, and it's going to get worse. And the only hope is Jesus Christ coming back. That's the only way we can make it in life. That's all we got. That's all we need. That's better than anything we could ever have. And so he, he's... Daniel is saying, I need to know what is going on. Help me understand this. Give me the interpretation of it. I need to know, and we need to know, just like he did. But he took it in on a different level of his understanding. He didn't just go in a class, learn some information, take a test, and get it right. Something happened deep inside of him that was able to sustain him through 70 years of captivity and he was able to communicate communicate that to his people and say this is what will sustain you not that things are going to get better they're probably going to get worse but ultimately there is a king who is coming that will rule and reign and the saints of God will rule with him in his kingdom and that is going to be a great and glorious time we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God and it is not here it is not here. I sat with a, a gentleman yesterday, and we were, we were talking about the truth, right? Or it was, I think it was Friday. My days are so mixed up. My wife's not with me, and so when I wake up in the morning, I don't have anybody telling me what day it is, okay? Um, and as I sat there with this gentleman, he's, he's Jewish, he's, he's 80 years old, 
He, I don't know how many languages he knows, probably five, maybe six. He's a linguist. Um, he, he reads more in a day than most of us read in six months, literally. And so we're sitting here talking. We're talking about what's happening in society. We're talking about the different movements in society. We're looking at it from the vantage point of Scripture. And here's what he said, just out of nowhere. This is going to be weird. I gave you the background. I gave you the background. This, this, this guy's highly intelligent. This guy's well-grounded. All right? But he said, do you feel the Holy Spirit in the room right now? Now, some folks will say, ah, I don't, I don't get into that subjective stuff. Can I tell you something? Daniel saw something, and he heard something, and it shook him up deep down inside. Can I tell you something? The Word of God needs to grip you deep down inside. This is not a textbook. This is not a science book. Theology used to be the queen of the sciences. In other words, if you wanted to understand everything else, if you wanted to understand all of the other scientific disciplines, study theology first. Know the scriptures first. But don't just know them in your head because there's a ton of people that have them in their head, but it never reached their heart and it never changed their life and they can give you all of the answers. And when we look at the scriptures, we need to be moved deeply by them. There were times we'd go sit in church and hear preaching, and man, it would move my heart. It would move my heart. We need to be moved by the Scriptures. There needs to be some sense of something that is supernatural and powerful that is happening when we gather around the Word of God. And so Daniel was impacted, and we need to be impacted. Secondly, there is the interpretation. And again, um, let me just give you a... a you say, where are you getting this from? I'm trying to accurately inter interpret the text using a hermeneutical process. Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation, trying to take principles of interpretation and apply them to the text. You should be doing that too, right? We're just, we're just not going to, uh, you know, cut and paste. We're not just going to grab a verse and say, I'm going to tell you what this verse means, and I'm going to lay this verse on you. You may be taking that completely out of context. I want to understand the verse in its context. And so I want to understand apocalyptic literature. And as we get into this, understand the purpose of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is to encourage the church that God's kingdom is coming. It's bad. It's bad. There are a lot of things going on, but God's kingdom is coming so hold on. God's kingdom is coming to impose peace on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And this much-needed encouragement is communicated graphically with imagery, symbolism, and it at times seems wild. So that's apocalyptic literature. We're reading this to help us hang on in tough times. Secondly, I'll throw this word out there. It's the word transtemporal. In other words, Images and figures can apply to more than one period of time 
or history. They are visions that mesh together, that collapse in and unfold and expand. That's what we're looking at here. We're looking at something that is transtemporal. In other words, we're, we're looking at the different scenes in, in this narrative from the text, but also as he looks forward in history, there are going to be leaders that rise up that are going to look, look a lot like this little horn to people at a particular period of time, but they pass off the scene. So you know it's not this guy that he is talking about from the text. A third thing, as you look at this text, is the elasticity of vantage point that is not seen in any other literary genre. The elasticity of vantage point. You say, what do you mean by elasticity of vantage point? In other words, I'm going up in the fire tire, and I'm looking from above the treetops. And if I, take, if I go down, and that thing goes down and down and down, and when you get down a little bit further, you have a different vantage point. There's this elasticity of vantage point. Apocalyptic literature has this elasticity of vantage point. 30,000 feet, 5,000 feet, 1,000 feet, street level, Google Earth. Wow. This is what we're seeing right here 2,500 years ago. Google Earth in the Bible. We get to walk and see it up. Close. And so, so what is the interpretation? I'm going to break it down in, into three parts. Number one, in verses 17 and 18, we look at just simply the simplicity of the overview. So the first word is, is uh, simplicity. God's people suffer in an earthly kingdom, but they are ultimately going to receive an eternal kingdom. He says there are four beasts, which are four kings. They are historical, literal Kingdoms, I've already told you who they are, and I'll tell you again. They're Babylon, they're Persia, they're Greece, and they're Rome. It's Nebuchadnezzar, it's Cyrus, it's Alexander the Great, and the Little Horn. But Rome was led by a pretty uh, bad guy named Nero, and I'm not saying that that's who he's talking about here. The second thing is these four beasts arise. He tells us in the text, verses 17 and, eight, that 17 and 18, that the saints of the Most High will be delivered by their king and receive an eternal kingdom, and the king will be with his people forever. That's the beautiful thing. So I, I need to stop in the middle of all of this as the text has talked about the holy ones here in verse 18 and ask this question, who are the holy ones? Who were the holy ones in 550 B.C.? Who are the holy ones today? The holy ones would be God's believing people living on earth. God's believing people living on earth. He calls them saints. Who are the saints? I will tell you who the saints are. The saints are those who were told to kill a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost so that when the death angel came over, and he saw the blood he would pass over them because there was, there, was, there was an animal, a substitute that died in their place for their sin. Therefore, the death angel did not come in righteous judgment and kill them. Here's the thing. Every one of us deserves to die because we're sinners. So why do I deserve to die because I'm a sinner? Because God is holy. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fell. And in Romans 10, we're told that, that the, 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 the sin nature of Adam was passed down to all of us. We are sinners by nature. We are all sinners. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And we all deserve to die because of our sin. But in the Exodus, it was these people who put their faith in the blood of a sacrificed animal that was looking forward to the blood of a sacrificed animal. Savior that would be the saints of God. The saints of God are not people who are doing everything that's right. 
The saints of God are not perfect people. The saints of God are not people that are walking around that are just amazingly holy people. The saints of God are the people that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who is the object of their faith. Why do I get to go to heaven? Because I'm good, because I'm a preacher, because I try to share the gospel, because I read the Bible every day, because I pray. Why do I get to go to heaven? I get to go to heaven because I trusted Christ, period. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's who the saints are. Let us understand that this morning. And the saints are those who trust Christ and Christ alone. If you're trusting anything else, if you say, I'll tell you what, when I die, I hope I'm good enough to get in. Uh, Can I save you some energy? You're not good enough. Say, you don't know me. I I don't have to know you, but I know God. And he's holy and he's righteous and he's perfect. And none of us are. None of us are. What am I going to do? Why should he let you into heaven? There's only one answer that gets you in. I have trusted Christ and Christ alone to save me. Jesus paid it all. Listen to me. Listen to me. There's no other way in. There's no other way in. Have you trusted him this morning? It is in this simplicity that we draw this conclusion once we understand who the saints are. Life has to be lived in light of the big picture. Life has to be lived in light of the big picture. I felt so dumb yesterday. I'm driving down the road. I've got, I've got my phone plugged into my Apple CarPlay. And I've got it on the GPS. And I've got somewhere i got to be. But I decided I'd warm up on my sermon a little bit. So I started preaching to the windshield while I was driving down the road. I do that on occasion. If you, if you pass by me and you're like, oh, he looked like he's mad about something or whatever. I'm just, I'm just preaching to the windshield. I see, I see all of y'all up there in my windshield. I'm just, I'm just getting, you, getting you told, you know. And for some reason, for some reason, my GPS wasn't talking to me. And I wasn't looking at it. And I passed by like three exits. And forgot where I was going. I mean, I just, so, and, I, and you know what I did? I started yelling at my car. Went from preaching, getting ready for Sunday, holy, holy, holy. To like, what in the world is going on? Yeah. I was all wrapped up in the moment, and that's where we find ourselves most of the time. Life has to be lived. If, if apocalyptic literature, what Daniel is doing here, is telling us anything as he looks at the simplicity of what's happening and gives us these two verses, gives us these four beasts, gives us these four kingdoms, gives us this, these, these ten horns, gives us these three horns that are, that are taken out, this one horn that rises up, but then God Almighty comes at the end of the Ancient of Days, finally makes everything right. We have to live life by looking at the big picture. All that we go through must, be, must constantly be taken to God's revelation of ultimate reality. I would say secondly by way of application, let the shock of the moment, let fear and uncertainty and pain push us to look for meaning, listen, in something besides our happiness or our self-centeredness or our comfort or our relief or our pleasure. 
We, we live in a highly therapeutic age where everybody just wants to feel better. And you may never get to the place that you just feel better in life. And that might just be okay. I'm not offering you a Jesus that's going to make you feel better. I'm not offering you a Jesus that's going to, that's going to make your life better. Okay? But we have to look at the big picture. And we have to understand that there are things that shock us and grip our hearts with fear. So there's this simplicity in the interpretation. Secondly, there is this intensity beginning in verse number 19. Let me answer some questions. We've already read the text um, and just answer some questions of the text this morning as we uh, go through. First of all, who is the little horn? Who is the little horn that he talks about here in the text? And that's what Daniel is saying. Tell me who this little horn is. He is the last leader of earth's final kingdom. Why should this matter to the Jewish people in 550 B.C.? Again, like I said, your problems are not over when Babylon's done. Your problems are not over when Persia's done. Your problems are not over when Greece is done. Your problems are not over when Rome is done. Your problems will never be over until Jesus comes back. We're constantly going to be facing problems. We are awaiting a time when Nebuchadnezzar, listen, We are awaiting a time when Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Alexander the Great and Nero will look like Barney Fife compared to the little horn. These guys are going to be nothing compared to this guy that's coming at some point in the future. So, so who is this little horn? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 would indicate um, and this, this seems to be the perspective of many different eschatological perspectives, right? So, so you say, oh, man, I know what you are. You're, you know, dispensational premillennial or historical premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial or panmillennial or some kind of millennial. Most folks would say that this little horn is the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. A very specific individual, not just a group of people throughout history that Jesus defeats in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. This little horn, who is this little horn? He is the Antichrist of 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 18. This same story unfolds also in Revelation chapter 13 where there is this one figure who rises over humanity with a form of universal rule and savagery called the Antichrist. But before the final conflict, various little horns will rise up throughout history and they will, they, they will crush and persecute and mangle the people of God because even right now, until that time comes, this this world as is at war with God and his people and will be until Jesus returns. And all of our capitulation, all of our denominational capitulation, which is happening left and right, look at your major denominations. Every single one of them is capitulating to the culture and it changes nothing. They hate God. The culture hates God and his people. And if we stand on the truth of his word and his spirit flows Through us, there will be people that are either drawn by the power of his spirit or they will be repulsed. So let us understand that this morning. Who is this little horn? How is he identified? He is identified as having eyes, which means that he is intelligent. He has a mouth, which means that he is speaking arrogant things. That could be a lot of people, right? 
I thought maybe it could, well, anyway, I won't get into that. He's a troublemaker. He's, he's, he's stunning. He's attractive. He's deceptive. I was talking to my buddy yesterday, and uh, Tim, he's 67, and he and I both have come to the conclusion that we didn't think as much as we thought we knew when we were young. Um, but there was something about me at the time that was just attracted to people that just knew it all. Um, you know, you ever, you ever been that way where you, you're like uncertain about a lot of things, but you come across somebody, they got all the answers, they got everything figured out. And, uh, and I was just attracted to those people. Like, dang, oh man, I feel so dumb and you're so smart. I don't have anything figured out. You got everything figured out. I want to hang out with you so maybe one day I can have everything figured out like you and people think I'm as smart as you are. As you get older, you realize you don't have it figured out. There's going to be a lot of people impressed with the Antichrist. They're going to be like, this guy's got it figured out, man. I like the way he thinks. I like the way he talks. He's going to be arrogant. He's going to be intelligent. He's going to be a troublemaker. He's going to be deceptive. He's going to be attractive. He's going to be violent. He's going to be unlike anything the world has ever seen. What does he do? The text bears this out as well. We see that there will be worldwide domination. There will be universal savagery. He is going to devour. If you see the description of him, he devours. You, you just see somebody coming in. It's, it's kind of like a, a, you know, a, a defensive player that busts through the line, that grabs the quarterback, that flings him to the ground, and then he gets up, and if my hamstrings would let me, I would prance like they do, but I can't do it. I can't raise my knees up this morning. But you see them, I mean, they're just stamping, and they're just stamping their feet, and they're just moving all around like I just accomplished something. I just tackled a guy that weighed 150 pounds less than me. That's what, that's what this guy's going to be. That's the picture. It's this picture of somebody that's just, that's just stomping everything, that's just crushing everything, that's just smashing everything to pieces. It's going to be violence like the world has never seen. Not only is there going to be worldwide domination, but there will be internal manipulation and fragmentation. He will be a very divisive man because he is going to take out three of the horns and he is going to assume power from them. There will be no cohesion. There will be no bonding because we see this clay and this iron that will not mix together. The text tells us he speaks against the, the creator. He speaks against God. He speaks against where we came from. He speaks against how life is sustained. He speaks against the word of God. He speaks against God as the source of life. All that he can bring is death and he speaks against everything that brings life. Life is found in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, but there, there is the thief that comes to steal and to kill and destroy, and that's all this guy has to offer. But unfortunately for many of us, we think that the things that are promised to us that we're told will give us life, like this fruit of the tree right in the garden. Guys, y'all y'all haven't experienced anything until you've tried this, and it only brings death. It's the life saving. And so, so this is the Antichrist. He's speaking against the Creator. He is speaking against the one who created and sustains and who gives life. And the text says that he will wear down and wear out the saints of God. And this is protracted action that happens throughout history, but it is going to happen in an unusual way at the end of time in the last kingdom where, 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 where this despotic king 
rules. He changes the time and seasons. He's, he's changing the festivals. He's changing the, the religious calendar. He's changing the practices of worship. But the text, and I've already read it, has is, is, is been given to him. We see it in verse number 25. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. Whatever he is doing, God is allowing him to do it for a period of time. So that is the that is this intense time where um, the Antichrist, this interpretation that, that um, Daniel is, is giving, or Gabriel or whoever the angel is, is giving to Daniel. Thirdly, we see victory. We see simplicity. He gives us an overview. We see this intensity, and he gives us these details about this, this man, this ruler, this kingdom, but then there's victory. If you will, look at verse 26. But... But it, it reminds me of, um, of Ephesians chapter 2, right? Verse 4. You look at verses 1 to 3, and it talks about how the, the prince of the, this world, and we're, we're following after him, the course of life, the path of life that we're on. But there is this God. But there is this interruption. There is this turnaround that comes when Jesus Christ comes into our heart and life. He's telling us that one day this mess will be stopped in its tracks. He's telling us that the lies will be exposed. Sin never gives life. Sin never wins. Evil can only do what evil does. Please mark that down. Evil can only do what evil does. It only destroys. Evil makes promises. Temptation makes promises. Sin gives brief, shallow fulfillment. There, but there will always be the conjunction where history, that word but, where history turns on a dime. All of these kingdoms throughout time. But then the Ancient of Days shows up. Court is held. The books are open. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, moves on to the scene and brings great victory to his people. I want to just take you to a couple of places in the text this morning. If you would go back to the book of Revelation, because here's what it says in verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. I've heard people say, I tell you what, man, I'd rather, I'd rather party in, in Hades with Satan than to be a servant in heaven with God. Um, well, th those are interesting comparisons. Those are interesting rationalizations. Those are interesting polar opposites. But there ain't going to be no partying in hell. Okay? There's just not. Satan is absolutely going to be defeated. Um, every temptation that comes to us is a lie. It makes a promise of life, and it doesn't make good on it. Let us, let us not for, forget that there is a righteous and holy God who we are going to come before and his judgment is all that matters and all sin will be judged like we said last week and it will either be judged in his son and he gives us his righteousness if you believe in him or you will stand before him and you will be judged for your sin. This little horn, his... His dominion shall be taken away, and it will be consumed and destroyed to the end. And here's the good news. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Over in Revelation chapter 
20, verses 7 to 14. I just, I just want to read a couple of passages. Revelation chapter 20. Um, he says, he says um, verse 7, Then when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number shall be like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had been deceived, who had deceived them um, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who, who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead and who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, the book of life, I can't emphasize it enough. Life is found in Christ alone. And if you're not in Christ, you're dead. And I would beg you today, come to life. Come to life. We're thrown into the lake of fire. We see the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 in the courtroom in heaven, but then we give this, we're given this graphic description here in Revelation chapter 20. But then we see in, in verse number 27, he says that there's this establishment of this kingdom. And the beauty, the beauty of this kingdom is that the, kingdom, the king doesn't rule without his people, and the people are not in the kingdom without their king. In other words, the point of this kingdom is the beautiful relationship that exists between us and Jesus Christ. And we need to stop and let that soak in for a minute. The thing that I was created for was to be in fellowship with God. The thing that sin messed up and destroyed was my relationship and my fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But we're going, there's going to be a time when, at the end of history when sin is finally defeated that we are going to be restored to that beautiful relationship in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. And he's not just a king who wants to rule over something. And we're not just a people who want to go into this amazing kingdom where there's no sin and no crime. We never need anything. We got all the food. That we, that's not what we're looking for. The beauty of this kingdom is, is the beauty of this relationship with Christ and Christ alone. In fact, Revelation um, 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And God prepared a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you see the tenderness? Can you see the intimacy? Can you see the concern? And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What a beautiful, what a beautiful relationship. 
You know, for most of us in this room today, we would say that the most painful things that we've experienced in life have been at the hands of probably another person, right? A relationship. The things that are damaged in our hearts and in our minds, we would say those things are the product of a relationship that we just were not able to fix. And can I tell you that we work and we work and we work and we try to fix those relationships, but those relationships probably are not going to be fixed, but it's when we run to Christ that we recognize that the desire to have something fixed is only and ultimately satisfied in Him and Him alone. The, the pain that we feel, the agony that we feel, I'm not saying those things are not just on occasions, uh, but I'm just saying that ultimately we should let those things point us to Him and Him alone. I'm not saying that makes everything perfect on the earth, but it satisfies this longing in our heart to make everything right when everything right is screaming that our relationship with God is not right. But if we run to Him, then it transforms who we were on the inside. And so we see this beautiful picture. This is ultimately what happens at the end of time, but it can happen for you and me right now. Perhaps sporadically, we can get a taste of it, but we can look forward to it when Christ comes back and we are with him. And I don't know if they'll have computer games and I don't know if they'll have classic cars. I don't know what will be there and none of that will matter. I don't know if there'll be beaches or mountains. I don't, hope that doesn't disappoint you. I don't know if there'll be nice houses or shacks. I don't know. But none of that will matter because Jesus will be there. And that's what our soul longs for. Let me close with a, a couple of thoughts. Number one, I challenge you this morning with this thought. Have you been moved by the revelation of God? Have you been moved by God revealing himself and his hand throughout history? What is it that moves you? Do you need something on a 75-inch screen to be moved? Do you need your team to win the game to be moved? There is a level that the Lord created us to go to in our relationship with him that should move us and shake us. And change us. Has the, the revelation of God and himself and the hope of everything being fixed when he ultimately comes back, has that moved you this morning? Has that gripped you? Secondly, are you a saint? The only thing that makes you a saint is if you have your faith in Christ and Christ alone. Are you trusting him? Are you trusting the blood or are you trusting your works? Thirdly, God's kingdom always prevails. What kingdom are you a part of? What's going on in your brain? What do you think about? What's going on with your resources? What are you doing with them? What are you doing with your time? What does your calendar say? What are the things that you long for in your heart? All of those things are indicators. They're flashing lights, right? They're flashing lights. And they tell us which kingdom we're living in. They tell us which kingdom we're living in. You see, we're just, we're just coming here today to be reminded of what kingdom we're living in. But we leave here confident and hopeful. While we get out in the world and the, and the winds and the waves and the 
and the troubles and the pain all come our way, we have to be reminded that there is a king and there is a kingdom and we're a part of this kingdom and it's unlike anything else in the world. God's kingdom always prevails. You need to ask yourself what kingdom you're living in. When I was yelling at my car yesterday, I wondered about myself. I wondered about myself. I really did. I'm just like, what in the world is wrong with you? A lot. A lot. I'm not there yet. I'm still looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And he still has me in process. But I thank God the Holy Spirit in that moment said, hey, boy. He didn't say that. I've been hanging out with Lane too much. What kingdom are you living in? Fourthly and and finally, don't expect anything out of this temporal kingdom of the beast that you can only get from the kingdom of God. Folks, we're chasing a lot of stuff. We are. We're chasing a lot of stuff. Just with our energy... We've got, we've got, you can't, you can't look up the news. You can't look up the weather without that little computer that you hold in your hand knowing every search that you've taken and it's going to throw something up there. You've been, if you've been looking for a jacket, you're going to try to check the weather and it's going to throw that jacket in front of you. Chase this, chase this. There's constantly, we're being bombarded with things to chase. And I just want you to stop this morning and ask yourself, what are you chasing? Better yet, what's chasing you? And I want to challenge you to come to a place where you can rest. Come to a place where you can experience the love that your heart longs for. Come to a place where there is this Savior who's worked throughout history, we call it redemptive history, all of history is redemptive history, to bring us to a place where we as sinful people can be with him and where he, a holy God, can be with us. And that's what we were created for. As we think about communion this morning, um, we've talked about some powerful pictures. The picture of a lion, the picture of a bear, the picture of a leopard, the picture of a little horn. They are powerful, they are violent, they are abusive, they are threatening. But there's a king. And he's a shepherd. And he has a rod and a staff. And his rod and staff will comfort us if we come to him. And he doesn't come breaking. He doesn't come stomping. He doesn't come like the bear with ribs in his mouth. He comes being broken. In Revelation 5, they were looking and they were saying, what do you see? I see a lamb. (laughs) But he looks like he's been killed. It's a lamb who was slain. But he's standing up. He's resurrected. And he is the lover of our soul. 
And through his sacrifice, he conquered all that is wrong. He conquered all of these wicked kingdoms. And he has made everything right and been victorious through his resurrection. And so as you come today and you take a piece of bread and you take some grape juice that we got at Ingalls. And you look at those things. I want you to be reminded of the Good Shepherd. I want you to be reminded of the 23rd Psalm. I want you to come today and realize that if you're in Christ and you're chasing him and you know he's chasing you, that you can say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Right? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He can be yours today. He wants to be. So I encourage you to think about that as we think about all this stuff that's going on in our world, in our lives, in our church, in our souls. I want you to think about all the turmoil here and our only hope is in the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And I want to challenge you to trust Him and enjoy Him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this, this old literature that is your word that was written by an old man who saw some weird stuff. We thank you that throughout history it stands as the inspired word of God. That it's not some crazy guy that we joke about. but it is a message that you wanted not only to come to the people of Israel, but that you want to come to Locust Grove. I pray that our hearts would take comfort in the vision of eternity where there will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne of God, not caring if anybody sees them raise their hands, not caring if anybody hears them sing loud not caring if anybody sees them fall down in worship because they have just been overwhelmed by the lamb who was overcome and I pray that you would overwhelm us today I pray that you would underwhelm us with all this happening in our world and I pray that you would overwhelm us with the Savior who ultimately saves us from all of it Overwhelm us with a God who is sovereign over all of it. Overwhelm us with a love that will not let us go. Overwhelm us with a Savior who doesn't want a kingdom without us in it. And I pray that we would pray that we would feel that deeply today. I pray that we would know it deeply, not only in our mind, but in our heart. And I pray that it would change how we walk out of this room this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I invite you to come.